ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Tuesday, the 5th of December. I'm Sabra Lang coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. There's more pressure on the federal government with revelations that two recently released former immigration detainees are facing fresh criminal charges. The men were released as a result of the High Court's landmark ruling that indefinite detention is unlawful. Political reporter Stephanie Boris is at Parliament House in Canberra. Stephanie, what's the latest? Well, just weeks after being released from immigration detention, two men are now facing charges for two separate incidents. So in South Australia, a 65-year-old man has been charged with two counts of indecent assault. He was arrested over the weekend at an Adelaide motel, and that was after a woman alleged she'd been indecently assaulted. This man, Ali Yuwar Yuwari, faced court yesterday. He didn't apply for bail. In the past, he has been charged for assaulting women on more than one occasion. That was why he was in immigration detention, because he was serving a sentence but remained in immigration detention because the government was trying to deport him. Now, when he was sentenced in 2016, the judge described him as a danger to the Australian community and an ongoing risk to women. Separate to that case, Sabra, in New South Wales, a man has been charged with possessing a prohibited drug and police there are alleging that the man threw a number of resealable bags on the ground containing a substance they believe to be cannabis. The news about these two incidents has led the opposition to ramp up its calls for both the Home Affairs Minister and the Immigration Minister to resign. The opposition is arguing that the government's failed to keep the community safe following the release of these 148 people as a result of the High Court ruling. And Steph, the government's planning a preventative detention scheme to put some people back behind bars. When will that go before Parliament? So that's expected to go before Parliament, the Senate, tomorrow, and that aims to have some of the 148 people released from immigration detention locked back up. It's known as community safety detention orders. How it will work is the Immigration Minister will be given the power to go to a court and ask for someone to be re-detained if there's evidence they pose an unacceptable risk to the community of committing a serious violent offence or a sexual offence. In the end, though, Sabra, the decision is up to the court. So while the immigration minister can make the request, the final decision is in the hand in the hands of the court. So it's not really known how many could actually be locked back up as a result of this legislation. The opposition as well too, they've been arguing for such orders for a number of weeks and they're trying to link the charges of these two men to these orders saying, well, the government should have introduced this weeks ago. But of course, the government has long argued that it did have to wait for the reasons behind the High Court ruling before it came up with this legislation, just to ensure that it didn't face a new High Court challenge with this new legislation. So as I mentioned, it will go to Parliament tomorrow, first to the Senate. It then will be debated in the House of Representatives on Thursday. The expectation is that it will be passed this week before Parliament rises. It's Stephanie Boris. It's been revealed that fraud and payment errors cost the National Disability Insurance Scheme an estimated $1.4 billion last financial year. It's five times the amount from just two years ago. That revelation comes as the federal government prepares to release an independent review into the scheme. Jessica Longbottom reports. Perth mum Nicole Jamison is a little stunned when she hears about the NDIS money that's potentially been wasted. 
what a colossal waste of money when there are people out there who need assistance. We can't even, you know, access the basic support work and and other therapies for Toby. And I just think, well, (laughs) you know, what's going on? Her nine-year-old son, Toby, is an NDIS participant who has cocaine syndrome, a terminal degenerative disorder. He receives funding for 12 hours per week with a support worker, less than the 20 hours requested. And Nicole Jamison says it puts the family under enormous strain. It means that Toby's safety is compromised because I have three children and Toby requires one-on-one and I just simply cannot give it to him. I do my absolute best to make everything as safe as I can, but without having someone specifically just on him, then... I can't guarantee his safety. The annual report from the National Disability Insurance Agency that runs the NDIS shows an estimated $1.4 billion in payment errors in the past financial year, equivalent to about 4% of all NDIS payments. That includes roughly $200 million to participants where the payments aren't supported by the evidence provided and $1.2 billion in mistaken payments to providers. The agency came up with the estimates by analysing a sample of the payments it's made. It's a really concerning increase. Elle Gibbs is the Director of Policy and Advocacy at Disability Advocacy Network Australia. The kinds of supports that people with disability use their NDIS money for are essentials like speech therapy, like getting out of bed, like having a shower. So I worry when I see, you know, large amounts of money going to things that are not those essential services. The annual report singles out providers who give participants 24-hour-a-day care, known as supported independent living, for potentially overclaiming. For people particularly who don't have families and don't have kind of a support system around them, they are extremely at risk of having providers... Um, you know, charging them for services that they don't need or aren't using and are not always delivering on the kinds of things that they're funded for. Laurie Lee is the CEO of National Disability Services, the peak body for NDIS providers. There's no regulatory barrier to fraudulent uh, people and criminals becoming civil providers at the moment and that's um, certainly unacceptable and needs to change. She says while fraud happens, many erroneous claims would be from providers making mistakes. There are things around the actual claiming um, system and process for the NDIA, uh, which we know they're working on. There is a new case system being uh, rolled out. And once that is uh, complete, I think it will make things a lot easier. In a statement, the National Disability Insurance Agency says it's received a record $730 million in federal funding this year to detect and prevent payment anomalies and fraud. Whatever the issue, Perth mum Nicole Jamison just wants the federal government to fix it you've got over a billion dollars down the drain, then it really needs a good look at, doesn't it? It's not good enough. Perth mum, Nicole Jamison, ending that report from Jessica Longbottom. A previously secret report has delivered a scathing assessment of the Defence Department's selection of a controversial British design for a $45 billion warship project. The document, marked for Australian eyes only, confirms the Navy removed a value-for-money requirement before choosing BAE systems for the massive frigate program. Here's Defence Correspondent Andrew Green. Five years ago at Adelaide's Osborne Shipyards, then Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull announced the British winner for what was at the time a $35 billion defence project. 
This is the day we announce our commitment, our partnership with BAE to build the nine future frigates. Since then, the program's been beset by delays and cost blowouts and questions have emerged over the Defence Department's process for selecting the design based on the UK's Type 26 warship. Earlier this year, the Auditor-General delivered a scathing assessment of the program, prompting Defence Secretary Greg Moriarty to order a review of his department's handling of the procurement for the now $45 billion project. That report classified secret Australian eyes only has just been released by way of Senate order to Green Senator David Shoebridge. This is a scathing assessment of Defence's procurement process, failing to assess risk, failing to assess value for money. I mean, what, what did they assess before signing Australia up to a $45 billion contract. According to the authors, retired senior military officers Craig Burke and Greg Samet, the Navy removed a requirement for value for money from the tender process and selected the controversial British design despite being aware of potential risks. They also detail how then Navy Chief Vice Admiral Tim Barrett, who now works as an advisor to the successful tenderer BAE Systems, was central to the choice he helped announce in 2018. Can I say to the workers here and those that will work in this program in the future, build these ships well. Our sailors expect and deserve nothing less. Senator Shoebridge says it's remarkable there have been no consequences. Not a single individual has been held to account. The Defence Secretary is still the Defence Secretary. And at worst, people have moved out of Defence into the very industry that they were contracting with, often with very large increases in their salaries. It's only in defence, it seems, where you fail up. BAE Systems Australia has declined to comment. Andrew Green reporting. Traditional owners are frustrated about the pace of negotiations with mining giant Glencore over how to protect their sacred sites beside the Northern Territory's MacArthur River mine, so they're trying to speed up the process. They've set up their own organisation to accelerate the talks with the company that owns the world's biggest zinc and lead mine, as Jane Barden reports. As you crest a ridge on the road to Borroloola on the Gulf of Carpentaria, a huge slate grey mountain looms. It's the MacArthur River Mine's waste rock dump. For Josie Davy, one of the mine site's traditional owners, it's been devastating to watch it grow to 80 metres high over the past decade. It's getting bigger and bigger every time we drive past there. I feel so sad every time we drive past and we look at it. In 2014, iron parietes on the dump started burning, so miner Glencore has had to cover it with clay and insulation to try to keep it stable. But it's still leaching heavy metals into the MacArthur River. It's already damaged, you know, yeah, and we're just really worried about it. Fearing the steep sides of the dump could collapse onto legally protected areas, the NT's Sacred Sites watchdog has refused to approve the company's plan to double its size. So Glencore started talks with traditional owners, brokered by the Northern Land Council, offering an Indigenous land use agreement to protect sacred sites and the environment and to come up with compensation for damage caused. Josie Davies' husband, Jack Green, is a senior Garawa elder. I reckon there should be a compensation for the damage of the rainbow snake and I feel that T.O. has been missing out all that time. 
Glencore wants to keep expanding the dump and the Territory Government is allowing that to happen while the negotiations continue. Nicole Manison is the NT Mining Minister. There is a huge amount of work happening at MacArthur River Mine and of course making sure that sacred site protection is part of that is critical. Is there any prospect of it getting resolved? These are really important processes and I think everybody wants certainty with regards to that and, and that's why that important work continues to take place. However, after two years of talks, there's still no deal. Maria Pyro is an Indigenous community leader. We have a million dollar mine just down the road and we still have housing problems. Our roads have holes in it. My people are still struggling. Instead of continuing to negotiate with the company through the Northern Land Council, the mine site traditional owners have formed a new corporation to try to speed up the talks. I haven't seen any progress since about two years ago, and I was there when, when we set it up. That is why we got together now, and we wanted to progress in our way, in our time. In a statement, the Northern Land Council says it stands behind the traditional owners in the fight to protect their lands, and it's confident an agreement will be produced in the near future. Glencore says in a statement, its waste rock storage continues to be safe, stable and non-polluting and it remains committed to negotiating an agreement through the Land Council. Traditional owner Josie Davy says she's already waited too long. What I want the mines to do to, to fix up the country, we want the mine to be fixed. Traditional owner Josie Davy speaking with Jane Barden. Next year, 450,000 Australians will have to move off their lower fixed interest rate home loan onto a higher variable rate. It's often referred to as a mortgage cliff and some borrowers who've had to refinance could struggle to meet their new higher repayments. Nassim Kadem reports. When Alicia Watson and her partner went to refinance their home loan, their interest rate was lowered, a reward for cutting their spending and making extra repayments. We budget quite stringently. I've got an Excel spreadsheet, which is just wild. Um, and basically it does to the very cent of what everything in our life costs. Under rules imposed by the banking regulator APRA, banks have to assess a new borrower's ability to repay a home loan at 3% higher than the current interest rates on offer. But when it comes to refinancing, banks are offering some people like Alicia, who borrowed less money than originally offered, a lower buffer of 1% or 2%. We were able to refinance, but I think that's just because um, uh, of the fact that we we took out the smaller loan rather than the bigger loan. Not everyone is as lucky, according to Sally Tyndall, the research director from Rate City, a financial comparison website. She wants the banking regulator APRA to change the rules so that everyone refinancing can get a better deal. People are looking to refinance to get relief from rising rates. One of the best ways to do that is to move to one of the lowest rates in the market. Uh, but the problem is not everyone is willing to reduce that stress test for refinances. Westpac senior economist Matthew Hassan says at the moment the banks only lower the buffer on a case-by-case -case basis. In most cases they'll be uh, very good uh, borrowers. They would have made their repayments and they uh, are well placed in terms of other, other aspects of their finances. Melbourne-based mortgage broker Philip Robertson believes more flexibility is needed. This situation and their circumstances would be so much better if they were able to perhaps go interest only for a short time, change to a lender who had a low rate, 
that would relieve a lot of stress, especially on people who are more vulnerable or lower income people. While the number of people defaulting on their home loans has been low, Westpac's Matthew Hassan says this could change if rates stay high. A key question mark is the extent to which we start to see some weakening in the labour market. If there are some job losses, then that will tend to see arrears push higher as well. Uh, That will flow through over the next 12 months to the extent that that then flows through to mortgages and uh, possession that'll tend to be the back end of next year. The Reserve Bank holds its last meeting for the year today. Nassim Kadam. In Indonesia, rescue teams are still trying to find 12 missing climbers who were on an active volcano when it erupted over the weekend. 11 bodies have been found so far at the Mount Merapi in Sumatra and the tragedy has been seen as a warning for other trekkers. Indonesia correspondent Bill Bertels reports. In an extraordinary video filmed on the volcanic mountain, a young woman completely covered in ash records a selfie telling her mother, this is what I look like now. In a separate video, a woman struggling to breathe talks into the camera. She managed to send it out, but local officials say she later died. For family members of the remaining missing climbers on Mount Merapi, it's a nerve-wracking wait, as rain mixed with ash continued to fall over the 2,900-metre-tall mountain. Rescue crews managed to bring some injured survivors to safety, but the continual eruption has stalled their ability to go further up the mountain to look for more survivors or to recover bodies. Dr Hendra Gunawan is the chief of Indonesia's Volcanology Centre. We tend to underestimate the mountain and assume it won't erupt, even though the statistics show it could happen any day. The volcano is not quite as famous as Mount Merapi in Java, but it nonetheless is the most active one in Sumatra and attracts thousands of trekkers each year. That's despite a ban that's been in place for more than a decade, forbidding people from going within three kilometres of the crater. But enforcement is lax. And volcanology chief Hendra Gunawan says trekkers have long been ignoring the ban. From what we understand, the fatalities have all occurred within the top section of the mountain, within a kilometre or so of the crater. Our recommendation for visitors has long been to avoid the three-kilometre buffer zone. But too many people actually want to go into the danger zone. Around 70 people were hiking on Mount Merapi on Sunday when it erupted. Volcanologist from the University of Queensland, Dr Teresa Ubide, says it shouldn't have come as a surprise to anyone. Volcanic eruption in Indonesia is expected and in this particular volcano, this is an active volcano that was erupting earlier in 2023. So it is expected and common. And she says it's a reminder to hikers everywhere about the risks. We need to be aware that active volcanoes are active and they can erupt. This is a horror story and we need to know that as much as the emergency management and the volcano monitoring agencies do their best, it's it's not a straightforward thing to do and, and there are certain risks. Search crews will continue to look for the missing hikers on Tuesday if the flow of volcanic ash rising from Mount Merapi eases. This is Bill Bertels in Jakarta reporting for AM. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. 
By the time the year is out, the number of immigrants who've arrived in Australia in 2023 will have reached up to 600,000. That's more people than the population of the national capital. Today, the ABC's business editor, Ian Verinder, on the impact the surge is having on inflation, interest rates and rental prices, and what the government should be doing about it. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.